How do you go from covering business as a journalist to building a business? Welcome to Venture Voice, episode number 29. I'm your host, Greg Gallant, and today I interview Shoba Perushopoman. She's the CEO and co-founder of The News Market. Shoba started her career as a journalist at The Wall Street Journal and Dow Jones Newswire. She jumped ship from journalism to public relations and took full advantage of the rise of video news. While large companies were prepared for print news media, they didn't have a clue about how to handle being covered by a camera. Shoba's firm showed them how. She sold her public relations agency for a tidy sum and noticed an opportunity to make video distribution more efficient. She started the news market so companies could easily get video clips to news producers who needed them using the web. Think of what PR Newswire and Businesswire have done for print news releases. Shoba's company is doing that for video. She just raised $12 million last fall for her business, and she's already signed many Fortune 500 companies as clients. Just recently, she even added Google to the list. Shoba has seen how revolutionary cable news was, but now there's a revolution on the internet in video that we're all seeing. Let's hear from Shoba about how she's building her business. Well, Shoba, welcome to Venture Voice. Thank you. It's good to talk to you. Great. Now, I saw in your bio that you started your career as a journalist. Can you tell me about kind of how you got started with that? Sure. Um, I started as a journalist in Asia, in Malaysia. That's where you grew up? That's where I grew up. Um, I'm of Sri Lankan descent, but I grew up in Malaysia. And when I, I uh, came back from college, uh, journalism seemed like a natural choice because I liked to write and uh, was an English major. And so I got into journalism uh, and I uh, uh, got into business journalism and found it uh, very, very fascinating. And so it, uh, you know, became a career for about nine years. Wow. So what, what were you covering then? You- I started off the first two years I was in Malaysia and um, this was in the mid-80s. And it was, you know, um, kind of a... Um, emerging recessionary global economy at that point. Uh, and so there were a lot of, uh, you know, Malaysia uh, was and still is a very fast-growing, developing nation. And so at that time, um, the country was just starting to go into a lot of uh, industries, manufacturing industries. There was a, a huge uh, focus on attracting foreign investment, So I covered, I worked for a business magazine. It was the only business magazine in the country at that time. And a lot of the things that I covered were sort of CEO interviews or major business trends, banking deregulation. Uh, And then after that, I came to the U.S. where uh, I came to do, I came to go to graduate school, um, but got an internship um, in Washington, D.C. with the Wall Street Journal's bureau there. And, you know, as an intern, I covered basically anything that nobody else wanted to cover. Okay, so when you were a journalist, what, what aspect of it really excited you? Was it, the, was it getting the scoop? Was it doing analysis? Was it just doing the writing? Well, I started off with, uh, because it was a business magazine and it came out once every two weeks, with a lot of the analysis, right? We did get an opportunity to break stories, but that wasn't really the focus. So I liked... The fact, uh, you know, feeling that I was able to provide the readers with some insight uh, 
Um, I think the most exciting thing for me was just meeting and talking to people because uh, you know, as a business journalist, invariably you are talking to a lot of people who are successful, um, who are what appeared to be very, led very exciting lives. So I liked the actual reporting element of it. And there's something very satisfying about seeing your writing being published and knowing that people are reading it. So that, you know, it had a very good after effect as well. Is there anything about it that you didn't like? It, uh, you know, at the time I didn't like the, uh, it was hard as someone fresh from college um, to be in an environment where editors edited your work and uh, your stories got ripped apart. So you very quickly had to uh, get rid of any ego you might have had. So it was very painful when it was happening uh, to be told that, you know, your, your lead sucked, right? Um, and it's, journalism is also a pretty, the newsroom is a pretty harsh environment. Uh, it's very deadline-driven. Uh, your work's not done till it's done. There's no set of hours. Um, and so, but that's, once you get over getting used to it, that's what makes it really exciting because it's very unpredictable. So with that exciting environment, whatever led you to get out of it? Well, the, uh, a couple of things. Uh, I, you know, after eight or nine years in journalism, I began to feel that there were one of two parts. I could continue to be a journalist uh, reporting from the sidelines. Um, I could try to become a columnist where I was influencing people. I didn't think I had uh, necessarily the talent to become a columnist or the inclination, and I didn't want to continue to be just reporting from the sidelines. I felt that I put a lot of effort into stories, um, and it was very exciting when it was happening, and it was great to see it published. It's great to see your byline, but there's nothing really tangible. Very few journalists change the world by an article that they've written. Um, and as a business journalist working for a daily newspaper and a wire service, uh, you, you know, you're kind of churning it out. And I wanted to do something that was more tangible, which I could say, you know, I am responsible for this and I made a difference. Just looking back really quickly on your career as a journalist, which, if you had to kind of pull one story out of your clipbook to, you know, remind yourself and other people what you did then, which one would it be? A lot of the stories that I did at the journal were exciting because I was an intern, and so whenever anything got published, it was always exciting. And I did some analysis when I was in the London Bureau when I subsequently got hired by Dow Jones on the, um, there were a number of different financial crises. So... That was sort of exciting, but probably the first uh, big story that sticks in my mind was an insider trading story that I broke uh, in Malaysia. You know, it was a much smaller market, not, nowhere as exciting or uh, a big an impact as it working in the U.S. or the U.K., but as a young journalist to get a story on uh, exposing potential conflicts in a large financial institution, that was very exciting. But, so you've had enough of this, and how do you go about figuring out what your next step was then? Um, I was very lucky because I had a friend who um, I had met as a journalist who had started a business uh, in London. And so 
he uh, had made the transition from being a journalist to a successful entrepreneur and kept trying to entice me to leave journalism to come uh, help him build the business. So after three or four years of, uh, of having conversations, I finally did it. Uh, I felt that uh, you know, after nine or ten years in journalism, it was a good time to move and that um, I had little to lose. You know, if I didn't like what I was getting into, I could always go back to journalism was, was how I analyzed it. So um, I think I had the security of joining somebody who was a very good friend uh, and knowing that this was a somewhat contained risk. So what was the offer to you? Was it to come in and take an equity piece and do a certain role, or how exactly was it offered to you? It was to come in and uh, uh, join as a partner. I would be given an equity stake uh, in return for the fact that uh, you know I was uh, I, I didn't have to put any capital in, but I was giving up um, a very attractive compensation package uh, in journalism. To I was actually taking a substantial pay cut and uh, foregoing all kinds of benefits. So in, in return, I was getting a partnership. To be perfectly honest, it didn't really mean that much to me at that point. Um, I was just more interested in the experience, and I wanted to try something different. I was getting a bit restless with journalism. So, And then in hindsight, once I was in the business, um, then the equity piece meant a lot more. And you know, it became very addictive and exciting to think that you were building something. So what kind of business was this? It was a media consulting business. Um, we provided uh, Fortune 500 companies with uh, strategy consulting and tactical execution on how to manage their branding. So it was a marketing consulting, it was a public relations consulting practice on how to manage their image on television news. So we were tapping into uh, the changing uh, television landscape that was seeing a lot of new channels emerging, and so we were advising major global brands on how to take advantage of this. Was this a hard transition? I mean, you were used to having companies kind of pitch stories to you, and now here you are having to sell to these companies. It was a very hard transition in some aspects. I think it took me two years before I could... Uh, admit that I was no longer a journalist, that I had crossed over to the dark side, if you will. But there were other elements that were very exciting. I think, you know, I've really come to believe that journalism is one of the best foundations anyone can have, especially if you intend to become an entrepreneur. There's so many skills in journalism that set you up uh, to, be, uh, to be able to cope with entrepreneurship. So um, one of the early things that I really liked about the transition was I liked the fact that um, I was able to work with a team of people and uh, impart with uh, some knowledge and experience. We had a lot of young people who were coming into the business. I, was, I had more work experience, and I had by this point worked in Asia, the U.S., and Europe, and so I had a good global experience to, to share with folks. So that was a good feeling. And now you came from the print world. What did you know about broadcast? Nothing, you know, other than being a observer of television news. And that was part of the attraction. You know, I knew that television was going to be big, and so it was attractive to me to uh, dip a toe into that world. Um, I found 
that the fact that I had been I'd been a print journalist, but I was also a wire service journalist, and wire services your deadline is every second. So that allowed me actually to cope with the deadlines of television news, which are a lot harsher than print generally. So it was quite good. It was exciting to to be part of an industry that was going through sea change. So can you tell me about what kind of the real hard things or the real pain in the market was when you were starting this business that these Fortune 500 companies were having and how you were able to make your business a real success by solving it? The world, the, the marketing world was going from a universe of two or three channels in any given market to 10, 15, 20 channels. They were going from appointment-driven news at 6 o'clock in the evening to 24-hour cable news networks. So suddenly you had... Uh, brands um, under the scrutiny of television cameras. And people didn't know how to cope with it because most brand and marketing and PR um, professionals within these large organizations had grown up in a print-centric world. So the, the, the problem we solved, it was both a problem and an opportunity. We were able to go to them and say, hey, no longer are you limited to just two television networks. You now have seven networks. You have local TV, you have national, you have international, you have cable, you have terrestrial, etc. So we were able to open up the universe, and that was really the main driver in the business. The problem we solved was we helped them make the transition from being totally print and word-driven to becoming more visually appreciative. Uh, and more television sensitive. And how do you go about selling this and getting in the door with these customers? Or do you have any particular kind of sales stories that you could share on how how are you able to close these deals? You know, I, I personally believe that the key to successful selling is to genuinely believe uh, and approach everything uh, from a perspective of you are you have something to offer this customer. You are really solving a problem as opposed to just selling a solution. So most of our sales and most of the sales that I have personally done has been cold calling, right? not networking driven. And that's really tough, but it's also very exhilarating. And I think we were lucky that we were as successful as we were because we, were, we had a product offering that was in demand at the time. So you can't, you know, I can't really take credit for being a superb salesperson. I, I do believe that we had a service that had a valid premise, um, and um, you know, you 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 learn when you have your own business to improvise a lot and to be uh, creative in your um, selling. So. A lot of things that a lot of other people have done, you know, creating opportunities, um, trying to approach people and say, I'm going to, you know, I happen to be in your town next week. Can I come see you? Even though you really are not passing through, but, you know, creating a dedicated event. And uh, I find now that you really find customers in the most amazing places. You can find a customer while you're on holiday on a beach. Uh, and uh, and that's fun too because you know it has an element of surprise. You're not in in a selling mode necessarily, um, so that's uh, something that I, I I like about what I do now. Oh yeah, I think that it would be tempting to assume that 
you know, everyone can sell to a consumer, but to sell to a Fortune 500, you kind of need a certain network or there's some kind of art to enterprise sales, but it's really something that you can just kind of get done with elbow grease if you're in the right place. Well, I think selling to the Fortune 500 certainly has its challenges. The biggest and most obvious is the bureaucracy um, and often the consensus-driven decision-making. But when I look back for every, you know, five painfully long and bureaucratic and annoying sales situations, there's a fantastic opportunity. I mean, I have many instances where I've had one meeting with somebody or even just a phone call with someone and they have purchased a six-figure account from us. Right. So I think that um, it's just one of those things. You know, If you were selling to smaller companies that are more nimble, you have a different type of problem. Selling to the Fortune 500 can be very rewarding because it is very exciting. Um, you know, today at the news market, we have customers like Google and AOL and uh, BMW and Adidas, and these are major global brands. And it's it's hard to beat that feeling that you are providing a valued service service to these organizations. Um, and um, so on balance, I think that uh, selling to Fortune 500 requires a lot of um, patience, but it's also very demanding because if you do your homework and you understand who you're talking to, you can actually become part of um, an exciting and rewarding relationship. So which sale that you've made are you the most proud of? Is there one that you can kind of point to and say, I just can't believe I made that sale or what a great sale that was? Uh, gosh, there are several. I think that I am uh, very proud of a sale I made some years ago to MasterCard International. Uh, I didn't think that uh, it, it, was a, it was my first real significant six-figure sale. Uh, it was more than half a million dollars. It was substantial. I had been selling for less than a year, so it was, I, was, you know, I had been selling literally for about four months. And so that was a pretty substantial, exciting feeling. More recently, I think a high point was selling to the chief marketing officer at Google. It was the first meeting, and half an hour into the meeting, it was obvious that Google would become a client. Uh, And that was very, very exciting. And I continue to be excited by that. Um, I also had a very exciting um, sales experience when we pitched AOL, who became a customer in uh, Q4 of 2005, um, and that was a good meeting. You know, we often have situations where somebody refuses to take a meeting for a long time because they don't believe that you have value, and then they finally take a meeting, and they go, wow, you know, why didn't I take a meeting earlier? Those, those experiences are hard to beat. Yeah, it sounds that way. So you were doing this business. What happened to that? Um, the first business had grown very rapidly and it was profitable. We had, you know, built out a global network of six offices and we began to see the emerging opportunity to create a distribution channel, an on-demand video distribution channel. We were right at the forefront of Fortune 500 marketing trends. We were also at the forefront of changes in the news industry. And we began to realize that by marrying these two opportunities and the changes, we could really create a new type of a uh, marketing distribution service. 
when we explored what was in the marketplace, we felt that there wasn't uh, a, a there, there was a void. A lot of people were still focused at existing distribution services and channels were focused on text and word. And we what were the existing distribution? Businesses such as PR Newswire and Business Wire were distribution text, you know, word distribution companies uh, for the marketing industry. And we felt there was a real opportunity to create a digital from ground up, from day one, video and visual based uh, service. So we, uh, the consulting practice had been uh, under, uh, had been approached for acquisition. And so we saw an opportunity to sell that business and to start with this, which we felt was a much larger business opportunity. So what exactly, what was your kind of pitch, right? When you just sold your old business, how would you describe what you were going to do? When we sold our old business, uh, and you know, till today, the mission of the news market hasn't changed. We are driven um, by a mission to create a broad and deep, on-demand platform for the aggregation and marketing and distribution of video news clips. We want every journalist to be able to come to thenewsmarket.com and find content that they can utilize in their reporting. This is a service for the media, but it's also a service for the marketing professional. So now to do this, it sounds like you needed a critical mass on both ends. Uh, how do you kind of overcome that? seems like it could be a chicken and the egg problem if you have too many journalists and not enough content or you get everyone to put up the content and there's no journalists to cover it. How do you manage that? Well, that was clearly the biggest challenge we had. It's definitely been a chicken and the egg. And um, the exciting thing about this is in hindsight, when we you know, look to see how did we get as far as we have, I think that the fact that we had a consulting practice where we had established customer relationships. A lot of our early clients at the news market were customers with whom we had developed a partnership for years at our consulting practice. So they trusted us. They uh, liked our work. They believed in the concept. And so we were able to start with an unfair advantage of having an existing customer base. So once we had clients such as Rolls-Royce, Aerospace, Motorola, EDS, 3Com, these were major global organizations that said, hey, we believe in this, we believe in you, we're happy to come along and help you build this. So we had a core base of global organized companies that journalists wanted to cover, had to cover, so we had one part of the equation. And again, through our consulting practice, which, you know, we took us 10 years to build it, we had a database and existing relationships with journalists. So we knew how the media worked in China and in Germany and in Brazil and in Kansas City. And we had names of journalists covering different beats. We had phone numbers. We had email addresses. Uh, we had existing personal relationships with them. So we had a starting base. And like all entrepreneurial ventures, we had a lot of people who were willing to help us. So we had journalists who liked the idea, who were willing to go along and help build on this, understood that we only had limited content initially, but the more journalists came, the more content we'd have. And so we, you know, it was really a step function in the early three, the first three or four years. 
each new customer brought us more journalists. But the beauty of this business is that each new customer does bring a new group of journalists, and the new group of journalists drive more customers. So we're now at a point where you know um, it is not a chicken and the egg situation anymore. We have customers. We have you know almost a hundred customers today across nine verticals: technology, the auto sector, healthcare, and um, this has allowed us to provide content to over 5,000 newsrooms in 140 countries. Wow. And how do you work out the revenue model for this in terms of deciding who to charge and how much? That was very, very simple. Traditionally, marketing departments have created content and provided it free of charge to the media. In many cases, it's required by disclosure rules and transparency for them to create a certain amount of content. And in other cases... That's how they sell their product by letting people know they have a new product in the marketplace or a new service. So we did nothing to mess with the. We didn't create a new revenue stream. What we did do was change the revenue、um, methodology. So historically, most of our clients had been used to allocating budget based on campaigns. So you know, I'm going to launch a new gadget at CES. I'm going to devote. Half a million dollars to this. What we have done is say to our clients, news isn't appointment driven any longer. And yes, you have a big splash at CES, but you can get attention. The media are interested in your content all year round, and therefore、um, we changed the revenue model from just campaign transaction based to a annual subscription based, a recurring revenue stream, and we fixed it. So. That was a big value add for the client because going into a relationship with the news market, they know that they have a fixed cost of distribution. They're not going to be penalized for huge success if they have a news story that's really successful. It's fantastic because the distribution costs are not going to be any more than what they thought going into it. And likewise for a crisis situation, in the last year with the tsunami and the and Katrina. We had customers such as the American Red Cross and UNICEF that were able to fulfill ten, twenty times the media demand they have had in a typical year because of this unexpected major global event, and their distribution costs was capped. So, what are some of the challenges to building this business? It sounds like it's very different from your last business, and that you had to build a technology platform. You were having to ha- kind of have a set product rather than just consulting, and then also I read that you raised、um, significant amount of money from venture capitalists for this business. Kind of, how did you manage all of that? And all of this right after nine eleven, I believe. Yes,、um, the, the there were there are a lot of things that are different. You know, the, the the space, which is the intersection of marketing and news, is the same. You're dealing and selling to the same community. Uh, and working with the same community of journalists, but in terms of building out the business, very very different. The consulting practice had no outside capital; it was all driven by P and L.、Uh, it was a almost entirely people-based business. It was a service business. Here, the news market it is a tech, as you say a technology、uh, business that is technology plus service, 
And the capital requirements are totally different, which is why we went to get outside equity. Probably the hardest thing for us was raising money uh, because of the time when we launched the business, because of the industry. We were ahead of the curve. And so there was a lot of education that had to be done. And um, I personally have no doubt that it was harder to raise money than it was to win customers. Uh, but we have uh, the fundraising got a lot easier as time went on. And the last uh, two rounds of financing, the first round of financing took three years to happen. But after that, the business began to get traction because we had capital to invest. And uh, so that's a, a, a challenge that I feel we've overcome. We now have some solid capital uh, and that will see us through the next several stages of development. And so where's the company at now in terms of revenue and in terms of profitability? The company is beyond trying to prove a concept. We, As I said, we have almost 100 clients. We grew 100% in 2005. We have actually grown 100% every year. Uh, and you know we're a privately held company, so um, all I will say about the revenues are that it's in the millions. And we um, have got a 95% customer retention rate, which we've had pretty much since inception as well. And um, we grew our headcount in 05 300%. Right? So we've added a lot to um, the team. And we're preparing for even more significant growth in the next couple of years. So I think we're moving from an early stage business to a fast, really fast growth business. And I and I'm, uh, believe that a year from now, the business will be in a very, very different place. We are a market leader. We've been very fortunate that we have not had a direct competitor. Um, we are the only web-based platform of this nature. And that could change, of course, in the next 12 months. And... Um, so we, we, we're preparing for that. So now, I mean, video, especially uh, at CES just recently, video just seems to be exploding now. I mean, you mentioned Google. I mean, they're doing something. There's YouTube now. There are kind of all these hot business-to-consumer uh, video sites. And I know with your website, you have to be, I think, a journalist to get approved in your registration. How do you see yourself kind of fitting in with all these direct-to-consumer video sites? In a couple of different ways. The, the market, there's a lot going on. You know, the last six months have been phenomenal when you think about just how video has leapfrogged to top of mind for so many people. You know, at consumer level, with all of the citizen journalism stuff that we've seen, right down to the world's largest media and technology companies paying attention to it. Uh, so I think that's been a dramatic shift. Um, where we sit, we are very, very focused in what we do. Right? So we are a B2B company. Um, we are integral to the news gathering process, which ultimately sees has a consumer face, but we are an intermediary. Where we see intersecting with the consumer today is providing all types of new media organizations the ability to very easily get video content. So our immediate focus now is to continue to provide marketing professionals with a very simplified, outsourced way to connect with the media. We're no longer just delivering video content to television 
broadcasters. We are delivering video content to some of the world's um, leading print publications, such as Business Week and Forbes and the New York Times, all of whom are now using visual imagery and video increasingly on the web editions. Um, and so I believe in the next 12 months, we're going to see the marketing industry create far more video than we've ever seen them do. And we're hoping that we're going to be the conduit for a lot of that. So the idea being that for these companies that to get it out to all the video that's going on, if they want their kind of promotional videos to get out, that they send it first to the news market. and that We disseminate it, correct. Because we have an audience of journalists in over 5,000 newsrooms. We have a great captive audience of content-hungry journalists on the one side. And our content archive is now being populated by organizations as diverse as Pfizer and General Motors. Right. These are all global companies, um, Intel, Motorola, etc., and so I think um, for, you know, the, the organizations that we don't have as clients, there's a huge attraction to be on our platform because we already have an audience of media. A lot of the peers are also using us. They're able to leverage what is a very high network effect. So tell me more about this deal that you did with Google. What, what happens with that deal? Well, you know, Google is, is it's, it's the same kind of a relationship that we have with all of our clients. They produce content. So, for example, um, when Google launched uh, Google's, it, its uh, map, uh, Google Maps and its satellite map product, um, it created content showing um, how you could navigate the product and how you could use the product. They, they create, our customers create all of the video. We do not get involved in content creation. They sent it to us. We digitized it, uploaded it, sent out an email alert to our media database of journalists letting them know there was fresh content from Google. And this is the same relationship that we have with, you know, this is what we do for all our clients. Journalists then get to preview from their desktop in low resolution the kind of what video is on offer. And they then get to pull it down digitally, a high bandwidth file, a broadcast quality file in MPEG-2 format, and cut it into the news programming. So there was a fantastic piece that CNBC did with Walt Mossberg um, doing a review of the um, Google Maps product. And they, CNBC used a, a lot of the video that they used in that report came from our website, from our repository. So CNBC was able to cut a program where they did their own independent reporting. They were able to rely on us to provide them with timely, fresh video. Google was able to provide content very simply without having to worry about whether CNBC and Bloomberg and WABC had it. They knew that everybody had access to it. In the next um, month or so, we will be launching on the Google website um, an integrated offering where journalists going to the Google Press Center will also be able to download broadcast-centered video directly from the website. What's it like working with Google? Is it any different than working with Pfizer or EDS? Does it have a different feel to it? Uh, at, at some level, it is. Uh, and, you, you know, at other levels, it isn't. Uh, we have some clients, uh, BMW, for example, or Adidas, uh, that are quite visual companies. They, they you know, the, the products... Um, that they produce have a high visual uh, angle to it. 
the auto sector is, is very, very virtual, and we work for many auto brands. Volvo is another client, and they have a lot of interesting human interest stories coming out. Uh, so some of those clients provide us with the opportunity to, to um, offer all types of journalists, all types of stories. Uh, and an organization uh, such as Google is interesting because it is in the news so much. They are breaching new frontiers weekly, if not daily. Um, so that's exciting as well. So it seems really interesting that your audience is journalists, but now there seems to be this opportunity kind of for more almost entrepreneurial journalists, journalists who will maybe just start a blog on their own, and there are a lot of examples of that. And kind of just recently there's this opportunity, not only can you do that with text on just being one person, but you can do that with audio or video. So, you know, be it a video podcast or a video blog. How do you view kind of all these people now that are coming up where they might have this video blog with thousands of people? Do you see them as audience for your service or not quite? I think the, the answer today is uh, yes and no. Uh, the, uh, our customer base is divided. Some would like to offer bloggers content. Others aren't quite sure. And I think you'll see that evolution happening with more and more people getting more and more comfortable with uh, providing bloggers with content. It's obviously a huge opportunity, uh, but it's understandable that some people are nervous about it because they, they, they don't know or they, you know, there's a perception that they will lose control of what can be done. But we live in a very, very fast-moving media environment. And uh, we, at the moment, our audience is, as you say, very focused, the professional media audience, but we will continue to be sensitive to where the market is and where our clients want us to go. So what's your policy today if there's an entrepreneur who's kind of just starting their own you know, media organization, be it just a podcast or a blog today? Is this something that they could get into today or not quite? Or? It's not quite. It's on a client-by-client -client basis. So we will get sometimes requests from uh, you know, a non-traditional journalist, um, somebody with, with, with a blog um, wanting video content, and they'll ask, usually it's specific, I want Motorola content or I want Palm One content, and uh, we will let the client know. And if they're interested in having their content made available, then we do, or we refer them to the customer contact. Um, but we are looking at creating a um, division within the website, within our service, that will be dedicated just to bloggers to allow customers who wish to provide bloggers with content to do so. So we're in the process of launching that. And what are some of the other, do you see other opportunities for entrepreneurs in video today? You know, is this a good way for people to promote startup companies by releasing video? Or, you know, where else do you see this kind of whole transition and this whole opportunity being appropriate for entrepreneurs versus larger companies? You know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of pontification about video out there today, but I think it's very, very, there's one very simple thing you need to understand about video. Visual, a picture paints a thousand words, right? Visual content is high impact. And we live in an environment where we have short attention spans, um, we want quickly digestible information. So I think that's the context for small or big companies to really focus on, that visual communication is high impact, it's lasting impressions, 
and um, there have never been quite as many opportunities. I think that we are rapidly moving into seeing video content being delivered uh, to um, handheld devices. That will transform how people view video more than anything else. So I think it's a great opportunity for small companies. Uh, there are many media outlets that are hungry for visual content. If you think about all of the newspapers that have websites, they don't have a 50-year archive uh, like a CNN. You know, CNN is 25 years, but you know they have a huge archive. Most news organizations in this world today do not have deep video archives. So for a small company, you can really level the playing field by creating video because if you present a journalist with video content, you have an advantage over a competitor or somebody else who does not. So I guess it's, this, it's a new field to play on where unlike text and print, you don't you may you might have as much experience as yeah it's it's a point of you know video today is still a novelty so it's a way for you to differentiate yourself and to punch above your weight uh, the big companies do it uh, but it's no long you know no longer creating video just for a handful of media outlets have video will travel so I think for small companies looking at product launches company launches trying to build credibility for the uh, senior executive, video is a highly appealing um, way to move forward. So what's your feeling now for the future as you look at the next few years? How big do you see the market? How big do you see your business within it? Kind of what's your feeling for how big you want to grow in the next couple of years? You, you know, I obviously have a very vested uh, interest and um, biased view on this. You're not I, the objective reporter anymore. I'm not the anymore, objective uh, reporter at the moment. Um, but um, I believe the opportunity for video is, is enormous. I believe that it is, um, you know, we're, we're in a market environment where everything is in the right place. The technology is there. The distribution uh, channels are there. The end consumer demand is getting there very rapidly. Costs are lower than they've ever been. So I'm very optimistic um, about the future for video. It's still we're scratching the surface. If you look at all of the offerings from the major organizations, everyone is experimenting. Right? And I think we're going to be experimenting for the next 18 months before it becomes truly mainstay. So, I, you know, I think the next 18 months are going to be very, very exciting. It's going to be very fast. Uh, technology, we're now getting to an um, era where there's more standards. And, you know, there's still multiple different formats for hardware and software out there relating to video. I think over the next 18 months, we'll see consolidation and some clear winners coming out of that. And that will be good for the industry. Um, and so... I believe we have um, a lot more to come. And what's, uh, what's on your agenda now? I mean, what's the most pressing thing? Is it raising more money? Is it hiring people, making sales? What's kind of uh, keeping you up at night right now? Well, raising more money is not on the agenda. We've done that. Uh, we had a very successful round um, last fall, and uh, we're set for that. 
So the, 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 the main agenda for us now is to accelerate our growth. We've hired 30 people, 25, 30 people in the last six months. So we're absorbing them now and preparing the team for some rapid growth. Uh, we are entering a very significant phase of product development and enhancement. So we'll, we will be rolling out a lot of new features. We've ha had tremendous operating history with the platform. We've learned a lot. Technology, video compression, search technology, a lot of things have changed in the marketplace, even in just the last six months, let alone the last three years. So we're very excited because, um, you know, we've been working on quite a bit in our product pipeline that we're going to be rolling out in the next six to 12 months. So that's top of mind. We're expanding globally. We are um, ramping up in Asia and in Europe. We already have 50% of our business is outside of the United States. So we see that potential uh, growing because we're adding, um, growing the team in, uh, outside of the U.S. So when you say new products, are these just all kind of minor enhancements on your current system or are, are these kind of big new directions? They are not necessarily new directions, but they are pretty significant new offerings that will enhance the car platform. Right? Can you tell us what any of them are? We are um, going to be providing far more personalization options for the journalist. We are also going to allow our customers to do more content submission um, on their own. Right now, we're doing everything for them, and some of our clients have expressed an interest in uh, doing some of it themselves, so they'll have more control over the process. And we are also going to be integrating with um, a lot more third parties to make our content even more pervasive than it is. Great. Well, did you have any uh, kind of final thoughts for what entrepreneurs should be thinking about over the next couple of years with all these changes? I think that um, entrepreneurs are looking for market opportunities, you know, a, a, there are two ways you can go. One is to come up with a brand new idea. Um, the other is to look at what's out there, the old way of doing things, and to see how you can transform stuff. And I think given where we are today with, in the media business and the technology business, the second option of looking at existing practices, there are so many things out there that we're doing that can be improved. And I believe that's a real opportunity. You know, I, I hear about companies that are um, launching new digital ways uh, to cut workflow, to cut resources. And I think that's, uh, that, you know, it's a lot of untapped potential in, in, in doing that. So I think that's something, uh, you know, becoming an entrepreneur and starting an entrepreneurial venture has many, many challenges. You have capital challenges, you have human resource challenges, you have business model challenges. And um, so there's enough out there today that you can limit some of the challenges that you take on from day one by looking at how you can improve things. You mean uh, limiting the challenges you take? As an entrepreneur, yeah. Um, why reinvent the wheel when you can make the wheel move a lot better instead? That sounds like great advice, but it sounds like the news market will be making a lot of news over the uh, next few months. We hope so. 
Shoba seems to be well on her way to building a large business. It's exciting to see all that's happening in internet video, and that Shoba has found a solid business model. There seems to be huge new developments in internet video every month. It'll be interesting to follow how Shoba's company reacts to it. We're going to be doing more and more here at Venture Voice to follow our past guests and keep up with their progress. I really enjoyed your feedback to my last show with John Bogle, the founder of the Vanguard Group. I was warned a bit before I did that show that I had to watch out for fear of losing some of my、uh, tech-heavy audience that have been listening for many of the tech entrepreneurs I've been following. But I was pleasantly surprised to see how quickly tech entrepreneurs seem to enjoy his story. I think it shows the value to look at companies in other industries to see what parallels might exist between your business and theirs. One comment struck me in particular from Stuart Doherty. He wrote, "Awesome show, Greg. I was skeptical when I read the description because I thought I wouldn't get another juicy tech startup story, which is what my mouth waters for each week. But I was pleasantly surprised, and I plan to look up Mr. Bogle's books." To hear more of what he has to say, so here at Venture Voice, we're going to keep looking to all industries to find entrepreneurs who you guys will learn from, even where you might not expect it. I also wanted to thank one of our former guests, Scott Heiferman, for letting me use his space to record that interview from our last show with John Bogle. In fact, Scott had a major announcement himself the other week. His company took an investment from eBay. So、it'll be fun to see what Meetup.com has in store. Now we want to keep hearing from you. In the meantime, let us know what you think of this show, the other shows. If you have any people you want us to track down to interview, let us know. We have a few ways for you guys to contact us. You can go on our website, click comments, and leave a public comment about our show, or react to what another listener had to say, or you can email us at talk@venturevoice.com. If you're on the road and you want to just give us a call. Feel free to call our listener line at two one two four six one four eight five zero. That's all for this Venture Voice. Look forward to next time. This is Greg Gallant with Venture Voice, entertaining entrepreneurship.